You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. world's largest democracy has just forced out the world's largest human rights organization. After years of, of struggle between the central government of India and the branch of Amnesty International in the country, Amnesty has finally suspended its operations inside India, uh, claiming that persecution from the Indian government made it impossible to operate. This is only the second country in which Amnesty has been forced to suspend its operations. The other one is Russia. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about what the assault on a major human rights group in India says about this country that claims to be the world's largest democracy, as I've said, and what it tells us about the trajectory of uh, global politics and modern authoritarianism more broadly in a world where democratic leaders, not just in India, are starting to coalesce around this kind of bureaucratic strategy for attacking human rights groups. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Been feeling really good about democracy lately. Oh, is it, is it? Is there anything else that has made you feel really excited and thrilled about what's going on? I mean, there's a fantastic display of just democratic politics the other day. But, yes, you know. the world's oldest democracy is also doing very well right now, as we saw in, in the U.S. debate, uh, which was definitely not one very angry, very authoritarian child yelling at somebody attempting to be a politician. Definitely not. <laughs> I like that. I like that you actually like pause there for a little bit. You're just like, what are we supposed to say to that? Right? Honestly, like, yeah. literally, what do you say to that? I yeah. I genuinely had to talk to my psychiatrist about the debate. So <laughs> So things are great in the United States, as you can see from your three American hosts' reactions to our current presidential race. But let's let's talk about India. We will come back to some connections with the US at the very end of the episode. But primarily, this is a story about a surprisingly long-running struggle between the Indian government and Amnesty International India. Uh, Alex, why don't you why don't you start us off with a little bit of, of how we got to the point where Amnesty eventually just felt like it needed to shut down entirely. Uh, it's it's on the ground operations. Sure. So there is a law in India called the Foreign Contribution Regulation, uh, and it's part of the FCRA, the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act. Ooh, exciting. Uh, Super exciting, and it sounds so banal, right? Uh, but this is actually super important. And it's a law that's been on the books for many years, and it's gone through some updates, and I'll explain those in a second. But most basically, what this law does is it says that organizations in India, and so NGOs primarily, 
cannot accept foreign money or if they and give them to other people in India. This is the most basic level. Now, in an update last month, what it so now FCRA 2020, what it basically did was two things. One is it moved the threshold of overhead that could be used. Uh, sorry, the amount of money that could be used for overhead from 50% to 20%. And it um, it effectively put that money in like a lockbox in a bank in, in Delhi, the capital. Uh, and so the way that NGOs, including Amnesty International, what they were saying is like, look, you're basically curtailing our ability to fund ourselves, right? Keep the lights on. Uh, you are making it impossible for us to even just use the money when we want to. And one of the main restrictions of this law is that that money from abroad can't really go to other people in India. And that's in order to kind of stop money laundering and a whole bunch of other issues that the government wants to stop. And those, there are some legitimate concerns. But either way, when you think of Amnesty International here, they're like, well, wait a minute, we're a development organization. We're a human rights organization. We need to be able to use money that we have uh, in order to give it to some people to get them out of poverty or help with their whatever program that they're doing or their own organization. And there are smaller NGOs, much smaller NGOs, that are reliant on money coming in from abroad. And we have to remember that Amnesty has a UK affiliate that is allowed to, you know, give money to its to its other partners. So what the criticism of this law, and it's been going on for some time, including from the UN, uh, you know, UN Human Rights Watchers, is that this is basic. This law is meant to curtail the work of NGOs. It is meant to stop the uh, their human rights uh, work and like pointing out that the, that the government sometimes has pretty massive failures. And now the Modi government, on purpose, is like overusing this law to shut down groups like Amnesty International because they have pointed out some misdeeds from uh, Modi's time in, in power. Before we kind of get much farther down the road here, I, I think I want to make sure that everyone listening knows what Amnesty International actually is and what they do. Uh, I think it's it's kind of important. Um, a lot of people have probably heard of it and you've you know seen it quoted you know in news articles about human rights and things like that and probably seen headlines. But uh, just you know to make sure everyone knows what they're actually doing. So uh, they're actually founded in the UK, which you know as Alex said, you know that has a lot of direct connection to the fact, you know, and they're based there to the fact that they are a, you know, foreign uh, organization, according to the Indian government. Um, but they're not, you know, directly funded by governments. They're mostly funded by donations from, you know, NGOs uh, and, you know, from people just sending in donations. They occasionally accept money from government-affiliated organizations, but for the most part, they're just kind of funded by just regular people who care about human rights. And what they do, their kind of founding principle was basically this, this line, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. And so their entire kind of um, modus operandi is to shine a light on human rights abuses. Uh, and that's, you know, they focus on a few different areas. So things like, you know, ending torture, uh, capital punishment, um, protecting LGBTQ rights, protecting uh, religious tolerance, uh, and then basic, you know, human rights, abuses, prisons, things like that. So what they do is they they shine a light. And by that, that basically means they report on things that are going on. Um, so most of its activity is to observe things that are happening and to write reports and make them public. And they do things like lobbying, you know, uh, work. So they go, uh, they'll talk to, you know, a U.S. Uh, panel in in Congress, right? They'll have a panel on human rights in Asia, for instance. And so they'll call it Amnesty International 
um, expert on that region and say, hey, what's going on there? And they'll they'll put these reports detailing like very specific human rights abuses. So in India, what they've been doing recently is documenting things like the 2020 Delhi riots. So these were these um, riots that were kicked off mostly by Hindu mobs attacking Muslims. So they document that, but they also document, you know, how the governments in particular handle these things, how police handle them, um, whether they, you know, do anything to stop it. Uh, they also have been documenting human rights abuses by the Indian government. Um, wait, uh, before before you get further, I, I want to talk more about this Delhi thing because it's, it's really important in, in this particular story. Because the Amnesty's big report on the Delhi riots uh, from this year isn't it isn't just like a hor- like horrible things happened which is often what they what they do document right in, in this context right, what they were writing and finding evidence of and putting together was actual government involvement in the anti-muslim pogrom right so they uh, documented for example police giving stones to a hindu shopkeeper to throw at his muslim neighbors they documented evidence of police beating uh, a Muslim person just because they could, basically, right? right. Like these, and and this matters because the Modi government's uh, one of the major planks of it of its sort of Hindutva ideology, which is essentially a Hindu supremacist vision for India that has been uh, around for quite some time now, but it dominates the BJP, Modi's party, their sort of way of thinking about the world. So this Hindutva ideology has really shaped a lot of their policy agenda and has shaped part of, of these allegations of authoritarianism that I've been alluding to earlier of Modi attempting to strip citizenship, for example, from uh, some majority Muslim areas and populations, uh, heavily Muslim populations, right? This, this kind of thing that amounts to reconfiguring India to be a state for the Hindus. So to document actual police complicity in an anti-Muslim riot, which would not be the first time that a government that Modi was in charge of has been complicit in anti-Muslim rioting, allegedly unconnected to police, right, would 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 be a pretty devastating blow, right? The last time this happened, he was governor of uh, an area called Gujarat. So at, at the time, the two, these, these Gujarat riots, uh, which happened under current Prime Minister Modi's watch, uh, at the time he was the chief minister of, of the Gujarat region, which is a sort of equivalent job to governor in the United States, and he was banned from entering the U.S., Modi, personally. The current prime minister was banned from entering the United States because of his complicity in this, right? So he is really sensitive to allegations of government complicity and anti-Muslim rioting, despite the fact that this anti-Muslim ideology is a really, really central part and openly proclaimed part of his government. So it, we don't have any hard evidence that this report specifically is what caused the Indian Amnesty International to get in trouble with the government. They've been they've had clashes before, of course, but it raised the stakes to a degree. And there's a reason that every news article that you read about the Amnesty International situation highlights this Delhi report. It's not just that it's recent, it's that it is damning for the government in a very specific and particular sense. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Zach. And and so, you know, that actual documented evidence is, you know, when we talk about this foreign funding, right? Again, Amnesty is based you know, headquartered in the UK. Um, So any country it works in is going to ostensibly have some degree of foreign financing because it's uh, based in another country. (laughs) But, you know, the the way that countries who, you know, target Amnesty International 
like Russia um, and India, you know, frame it as is kind of this like almost sinister, you know, foreign influences trying to, you know, meddle in the affairs of, you know, of other countries, right? And so the Ministry of Home Affairs of India put out this statement um, about Amnesty International when, you know, it kind of speaking to Amnesty's uh, accusations about, you know, that they're essentially getting kicked out of the country, that they're being targeted. Um, and the headline is, human rights cannot be an excuse for defying the law of the land, right? And again, this isn't that, you know, they were doing something horrific like, you know, human trafficking or, you know, selling drugs or or whatever. Like, it's literally just this funding, foreign funding law. And so the way this, you know, organization operates, this money is literally used to go around and document, you know, interviewing that that guy, right, who or someone who saw the police give that guy stones to attack his neighbor, right, documenting actual evidence, not just writing reports about, you know, things look kind of bad, but like actual hard evidence. And then they go and will testify to governments um, and to, you know, other organizations and say, look, this is what's going on. You need to know this. And so it's a really, you know, it's not just like this kind of vague, we like human rights. Like they do actual documented work. And I think that's really important to understand what this money is actually used for, what they're doing and why. Another one of those documented uh, things was just, uh, you know, torture in the Kashmir region, uh, which Amnesty International uh, India uh, documented, finding that if we remember from last year, India stripped the semi-autonomous you know, powers that Jammu and Kashmir had um, now has, you know, shut down the internet, com uh, complete crackdown on the region. And um, seems like there are a lot of problems there. And Amnesty has uh, documented some of those issues. And again, uh, the money that comes from the UK and elsewhere goes to trips to there and then people to interview people. And, and I should also say, let's not forget that, you know, this money also goes to pretty vulnerable people. India is a poor country. Um, it just is. And, and, the money that organizations like Amnesty get go to programs to help alleviate poverty and get people back on their feet and, and you know, do what they can and, and make a better life for themselves. And if they can't use that money, then what India is basically doing, the Indian government is basically doing, is making it harder for NGOs to, you know, <laughs> do anti-poverty programs. And I find that just so um, incredibly cruel and, and hard and, and, and heartless. Um, but let's be clear about why this is happening, or at least what it seems like why this is happening. So in 2016, uh, Modi, as prime minister, said that he was the victim of a conspiracy by NGOs and that they wanted to, quote unquote, finish him and remove his government. And as Zach alluded to earlier, Modi is very sensitive about perceptions that uh, you know, he's anti-Muslim and that he's against everyone. And like, it's very clear that he is. Uh, <laughs> but like, this is what he's sort of railing against. He believes that there's this, um, you know, local NGO cabal in effect, uh, you know, or like consortium working against his government and that he needs to push back against. I think it's important to note that, you know, between 2011 and 2019, what we saw was about 21,000 NGOs had their certific registration certificates canceled because of this FCRA law. 21,000? That's a wild number. Yeah, 21,000. Wow. And then uh, in that time, about 17,000, or roughly 80%, they were canceled by Modi's regime. And it should be noted, and it is implied in that stat, that the previous government before Modi was also canceling NGOs and like using this law. And so let's it's not like a Modi-only thing. 
but it looks like it is being weaponized by this government on purpose uh, to shut down the operations of groups like Amnesty. Yeah, one thing to add there, when that happened, one of the organizations, so like, you know, 21,000 is a lot, but like, I think nearly 9,000 of them were Indian organizations, like organizations that operate. Now, the way that they essentially got around that was by saying, well, they receive money from outside groups, from foreign contributions. Again, the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act, FCRA. Um, One, for example, was uh, this group called Sabarang Trust. Um, It had received money from the Ford Foundation, which is, you know, another NGO that does, you know, human rights and and development things around the world. Um, This organization was using that money in part to hold meetings and workshops on religious violence, including the the sectarian riots that shook Gujarat. So again, these are the kind of organizations that that are directly doing this kind of work that directly targets, uh, you know, activities that the Modi government is involved in, right? Uh, malign activities, right? Sectarian violence. So it, it's not hard to understand why they're doing this, right? If if you want to continue doing things that are extreme violations of, you know, blatant violations of human rights, well, yeah, you don't want people there taking photos and interviewing witnesses, right? You want to be able to get away with it. So it's a very blatant kind of you know, a uh, move that they're making here, but, but they're not even like, they're, they're using this kind of, you know, we'll talk about this more later. They're using this bureaucratic kind of rule. Um, but it's very clear, like it, it, it's very <laughs> evident exactly who they're targeting and exactly why it's, it's not exactly subtle. So don't take our word for it. I actually interviewed a, a top level uh, person at an NGO, uh, a prominent NGO in India who did not want to be named out of, for fear of being persecuted by the government and, and, and who can blame this person. And I, and I want to read what they told me because I think it sort of encapsulates everything that we've talked about so far. Overall, the new FCRA is an instrument of coercion to stop international NGOs from operating and choke any advocacy, policy recommendation, or work that identifies or creates opportunity to tell the government or communities that something is weak in its governance. And so, yeah, I mean, I, what else can you say? I mean, if if, you, if it's seen as an instrument of coercion uh, and it is, you know, basically making this person's life much harder, imagine what it's doing to the, all the other thousands of NGOs that are trying to make life in India better. And, and this is sort of the underlying tension is, you know, Modi is, paints himself as this populist who's trying to improve the economic well, you know, well-being of his people and, and just the overall status of India. And what you're seeing, or at least the, the broad implication of all of this, is that he is, you know, much more prioritizing his own, like, feelings and, and, and viewpoint and, and standing than those of his people who get helped by these thousands of NGOs who do really important work every day. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the nature of the Indian NGOs crackdown in context of a a much broader international trend of right-wing populists doing this kind of thing, and to to talk about how this network of right-wing populist governments is actually changing the foreign policies of their countries in some interesting ways. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. 
You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about Amnesty International suspending its operations in India. It has done so temporarily before, but this looks really, really serious uh, and seems to be the result of a sustained pressure campaign from the Indian government targeting human rights NGOs and Amnesty in particular. Uh, one thing I think is really interesting about this, and we've been talking about this throughout the episode, is that they the chief tool, not the only one, but the chief tool used to persecute Amnesty International has been an act designed to regulate money laundering uh, coming in from foreign countries, basically accusing them of improperly dispersing funds from abroad. Now, India is not the only country where allegations of foreign funding against has been used to demonize human rights NGOs. Uh, in, in Israel, for example, another country led by a populist right-wing leader with some serious and credible allegations of authoritarian tendencies – uh, you have uh, there's a law passed recently that forces all NGOs that receive funding from foreign organizations and governments to list it prominently on their website. The idea is to basically be able to accuse left-wing human rights NGOs of ha- being foreign plants, essentially, uh, you know, out there not to serve the interests of the Israeli people, but to be uh, a tool of the EU or BDS or whatever it is that uh, the Israeli government is angry at at this particular point in time to delegitimize them. BDS being the boycott, divest, and sanction movement against Israel. Um, And right-wing NGOs in Israel, interestingly, are are funded. They have foreign funding, but they primarily come from foreign individuals rather than groups. And so the law cleverly lets them get around it. They don't have to list their foreign funding because it comes from specific people. And in Hungary, another country, which is basically just at this point an authoritarian state with the trappings of democracy, one of the chief elements of government propaganda in there from, from Victor Orban's government has been to accuse any organization or group that is attempting to call attention to their more authoritarian measures of being part of an international campaign uh, led by George Soros to erode Hungarian sovereignty and absorb the entire country into like essentially an EU, United States of Europe kind of destruction of its independence. Uh, and national traditions. So this idea that advocating for human rights is essentially a foreign imposition is a very, very common tool of right-wing populists with authoritarian leanings internationally. And this India is is very far from alone. Yeah, and, you know, we mentioned uh, uh, briefly Russia. Russia, I think, is is one of the the poster children for this approach. Uh, In 2015, Putin signed a bill that essentially banned a whole bunch of uh, foreign organizations from operating in the country. Um, It it allowed authorities to prosecute foreign NGOs or firms designated as, quote, undesirable on national security grounds. So literally undesirable organizations. And these, you know, included things like, well, pro-democracy organizations. Uh, Again, groups like Amnesty International, other NGOs that are literally working to do things like document human rights abuses, things like, you know, pro-democracy initiatives. So things like, you know, election monitoring and, you know, supporting grassroots pro-democracy organizations, right? Again, these are things that are very directly, you know, challenging to the regime. Uh, and that's that's not an accident, right? This isn't just like they're randomly, you know, blanket kind of, banning all foreign actors, right? These are very specifically targeting groups that are working. And, you know, in some ways, 
to undermine the regime, right? It's not wrong to say that. And I understand, you know, from the regime's perspective, yes, a pro-democracy organization is undermining your authoritarian control of the country because that's the point. By definition. Right, exactly. Um, And so, you know, from the regime's perspective, yeah, of course it makes sense. They literally are trying to undermine you, but it's for a good cause. Uh, And so the thing is that, you know, if you, if you, you know, believe in human rights and if you believe in democracy and if you support these organizations, right, then you want to have them operate. But if you're a regime that is trying to, you know, squelch all dissent and, you know, erode democracy, then you want to get rid of these organizations. So it makes sense, right, from a, you know, and they often use not just, you know, this foreign kind of hook, but they also put it, frame it in national security terms, right? This is a threat to national security which, yeah, it is in the sense that it's a threat to the regime that's being authoritarian and, you know, taking away people's human rights and abusing people's human rights and and destroying democracy. Um, but, you know, they use that as a kind of veiled way to, to say, oh, these people are actually like secret foreign agents. There's an, actually a law in Russia that requires these groups to, you know, register as foreign agents, which there's the last point I want to make here is pretty rich when it comes to Russia uh, because, you know, they're pretty active in terms of foreign meddling in other countries, Uh, for instance, the U.S., but lots of other countries. Now, in the U.S., we have the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, which requires certain lobbying groups to register as foreign agents. But that's just, you know, they have to register. It's not like they get kicked out. It's, and these are like organizations that are primarily like, funded by governments, right? So think of like RT, Sputnik, like media outlets that are funded by the Russian government. Um, But it's very different. Like they're trying to kind of make an equivalency between these two, you know, oh, well, you have to label as foreign agents, but it's very different. This is just to essentially make them look like, you know, super sneaky foreign government entities when these aren't, these are non-governmental organizations. So I just want to make that kind of distinction. I think it's incredibly telling that, you know, officials in in Modi's party, the BJP, have basically said that human rights environmental activism are, quote unquote, anti-national. And like that fits with everything that you've just said, Jen, right? I mean, the the lens with which they're seeing this kind of work, and it is advocacy and it is pro-democracy work and pro-human rights work and all that. I mean, and it goes against sort of the core ideology of of the government there. But it it is clear, like it is clearly seen as a fight. It is a fight between the the values espoused by a lot of these NGOs and the values of the government that that lead the country in which those NGOs work. Well, in in, the, in that respect, the Russia comparison is really telling, right? Because Russia is not a like. I guess yes, there are elections in Russia, but that nobody pretends or thinks that they're competitive, right? Like this is an authoritarian regime. It it is avowedly. Well, one person yeah. pretends. Yeah. It's Vladimir That's, Putin. Yes, he pretends. <laughs> but I mean, come he's on. really good at pretending that. <laughs> nobody nobody is fooled in those contexts, right? But like the difference between Russia and and India, Israel, and Hungary is that those other countries they really work hard to either be democratic or portray themselves as such. Right. And so what, what's happening is that you have governments that have been at one point, maybe not recently in the case of Hungary, but at one point legitimately elected, adopting tools pioneered by an avowedly authoritarian government in order to curtail domestic democratic opponents. 
right? It's it's rewriting the rules of the game through bureaucratic mechanisms, not through some some complicated or not through some simple and naked authoritarian crackdown like a coup. It doesn't really work that way anymore in countries that are democracies that are tilting in a more authoritarian direction. You have these boring bureaucratic sounding measures like the FCRA. I mean, like honestly, who besides uh, you know, a small number of people is really concerned about the way that India does money laundering regulations. It's not exactly an exciting topic, but the way that it's used, right, is is as as we've been discussing, an anti-democratic tool, and that indicates the ways in which routinized uh, bureaucratic functions of government, things like cracking down on illegal transfers of money under certain kinds of right-wing populist governments, get redirected into attacks on the opposition themselves, right? The, the, the very normal and acceptable and defensible functions of government, again, like policing, money laundering, become politicized and turned into tools of repression. But what's interesting to me, in, in addition to the reshaping of bureaucratic neutral governance mechanisms, uh, is that this also tends to bring some of these countries into alignment in their foreign policy, right? It's not like Narendra Modi and Bibi Netanyahu are like, hey, you're cracking down on foreign NGOs or foreign-funded NGOs, and I'm doing that. Let's be friends. Rather, it's that they see an alignment of interests and that they both have certain shared governmental foreign policy. They they have certain shared governing priorities and certain shared opponents, and they can be politically useful for each other in context of appealing to their domestic constituencies. So there's this, uh, in in that particular example, a hilarious photo shoot. I forget when it was, but of Netanyahu and Modi hanging out on the beach. Uh, and it's just like, it looks like, like, uh, the outtakes from a romantic comedy, like they're just palling around having a great time. But in actuality, in, in the Israeli context in particular, it is super helpful to be able to show that you are making, uh, uh, tight alliances with a large foreign power, large and significant foreign power. Um, India is definitely that. So it shows, uh, as part of Netanyahu's whole campaign that he is, not isolated internationally by virtue of uh, some of his more repressive mechanisms at home, but that it can help him, if not the repressive mechanisms themselves, but his overall approach to government can bring him in alignment with some pretty important people internationally. Although Modi is also trying to get in like in close with America and Canada, and I'm not saying that America right now is the most the greatest example of democracy in the world, uh, as as we alluded to at the beginning. But but Modi's whole grand project, it seems, uh, is about like, well, making India great again, uh, or at least making India great, and be aligning itself with the U.S. and 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 Israel and all these other countries, regardless of ideology, in a sense, um, seems to be his goal. And and what these groups like Amnesty and others do is show that like you know, it's not that great here, guys. Uh, you're not doing that hot. And in fact, it's pretty repressive. Um, in fact, the the aid worker, you know, the the, in, the top NGO official who, you know, I, I quoted earlier, basically told me that this person felt that they were living in, in a new type of fascism in India where, um, you know, for the, like Hindu nationalism is uh, the animating ideology and is now considering leaving the country and sharing um, you know, their expertise elsewhere. I mean, like that's, that's sort of what's at stake is that it, it, these competing visions. And so I, 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 I think you're totally right in the grand sense, Zach, that like there's a, a loose network of, you know, countries that 
based on like the authoritarians who lead them, like want to have these these connections. But uh, I think Modi is is almost un- not unique, but he's singular in that he is pursuing personal power and like national power and doesn't care how he gets it uh, as long as he's able to promote like a certain vision. And so um, it's unsurprising, though, I guess still very depressing um, that like he sees NGOs as an enemy in that project. So one thing I want to kind of go back to, and this is the point that that Zach, you kind of flicked at earlier and, and ties into what you're talking about too. Um, you know, and that's what this all kind of means on a grand scale. And what happens when you have, you know, a series of leaders who call themselves democratic, you know, of countries who are ostensibly supposed to be, you know, beacons of democracy, right? For the longest time, Israel was, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, you know, the U.S. in particular, also obviously supposed to be a beacon of democracy. India, always described as, you know, the world's largest democracy. Um, you know, Hungary, part of the EU, right? It's supposed to be a democratic government, et cetera. Um, and again, I think we can leave Russia out here. But, you know, when you have all these leaders aligned and all kind of holding hands and, and you know, being kind of part of this loosely aligned group, when they're all saying they're democratic, that's a really big problem, right? Because that means that, you know, if you want to actually have, you know, democratic values, right? The, the point of, of democracy is to have dissent, right? Is to have groups like this, right? Even if they threaten your hold on power, that's the point. That's why you allow these groups to operate. That's why you have a free press, right? That's why you allow NGOs to operate. It's why you allow grassroots civil society organizations. It's to hold the government accountable. That is a cornerstone of democracy. And when you have all of these leaders of ostensible democracies, all pursuing these really similar policies, then that becomes a policy that is associated with democracies, right? Oh, well, but other democracies do it. It's fine. This is just how we do things, right? This is a thing. This is just a, a normal function of democracy, right? It it erodes the entire kind of concept and, and cornerstone of democracy. And so when you have other countries who are trying to become more democratic, right, and they're looking to examples around the world of, of how to build a democratic system, you have these models that are, are doing things that are very clearly undemocratic and erode democracy. And that's a really big problem, yeah. right? When you the core of democracy is being eroded like that, and all of your models are doing things that are undemocratic. Well, then who is the model of democracy anymore? That's a, that's a great point, and it also you can you can extend it further because there are concrete implications here, right? In terms of policy, right? One significant deterrent for countries that might have wanted to do something potentially shady is that they would experience difficulty getting benefits they wanted from advanced wealthy democracies, most notably right. but not exclusively the United States. Uh, right. If you, it's it's not that the U.S. would put sanctions on a country like India for kicking out Amnesty International. It's that in, in a normal American administration, you would be concerned that this kind of human rights abuse, uh, flagrantly human rights abuse, would prevent some kind of favorable trade arrangement, maybe increased security ties, intelligence cooperation agreements. Right. There are all sorts of practical things that countries like to agree on and like to work together on that uh, when it comes to relationships between democracies can be obstructed 
by human rights concerns, in part because there are pretty significant constituencies in uh, Western democracies who care about these things and can put pressure on lawmakers to act on them. But in a world where you have an American administration, I'm focusing on the U.S., but this applies to a lesser degree to all the countries we've been talking about, um, when you have an American administration that does not care about this kind of thing and, in fact, basically buys into it and is pursuing its own version of a minority rule pseudo-authoritarian strategy, uh, not as explicitly, not as well, not as competently, but but nonetheless has elements of, of consistency with some of these foreign democratic authoritarian tactics. I know that's a weird phrase, but uh, it's kind of hard <laughs> to shorthand competitive authoritarian or democratic backsliding all the time. Regardless, uh, it, it's a permission slip for countries because right. they know this won't stand in the way of whatever it is they want from the U.S. at that particular moment. And so there's a real uh, sort of network effect of all of these countries doing this kind of thing at the same time, where they encourage each other. I'd go you one further. Um, I agree with all of that, but I also think it's also for the countries that that the U.S. and other you know democracies are trying to punish for human rights or hold them accountable for human rights violations. So I think obviously China is a huge example, right? So when you know if the U.S. or other countries are trying to hold China accountable for things like you know imprisoning Uyghurs in concentration camps or you know kicking out. Uh, foreign journalists or cracking down on, I don't know, NGOs, uh, things like that. You know, when the U.S. tries to, or other countries, you know, in the EU um, try to hold China accountable, well, China can turn and go, okay, but you let them do it. But, oh, okay, well, but Hungary is doing it and Hungary's in the EU, so why should I listen to you? Uh, and so it, it also erodes credibility in trying to actually hold other human rights violators to account when you and your you know fellow countries are doing similar things. It does seem sort of in the in the I'll try to go to even like a fifty thousand foot level here. It does seem like the norm of creating kind of global coalitions against or to to push pretty important things like human rights has has kind of gone by the wayside. I mean, like we've talked about on the show before, like if the Trump administration were serious, really serious about you know, changing China's behavior on the Uyghurs or Hong Kong or a whole bunch of other issues, or even trade, frankly, it would be better served kind of working with European allies in concert, also some in Latin America and Africa and elsewhere, and banding together and, and not like be anti-China, but be like this, you know, China wall and effectively just say like, hey, guys, you can't go, you know, there's a red line here you can't cross. Otherwise, we're all in concert going to work against you to, to push this to push against this policy. And like, let's say even Trump all of a sudden came out and criticized Modi over this Amnesty International thing. It's not going to happen, uh, I, I would predict. Um, but even so, imagine he did. There is still no like global coalition on, you know, stopping uh, India's persecution of NGOs, which has been a years long issue, as we've discussed. Um, there is no like global mechanism, really, uh, that is being led by powerful countries to go against Modi and be like, hey, this is unacceptable behavior. We've reached a point in which leaders like Modi or other others can get away with these seemingly sort of small things like passing an FR, FCRA or, you know, uh, or whatever it may be, and then having Amnesty basically shut down its operations because their bank account is frozen, uh, <laughs> and yet nothing's going to happen. And so what I worry is that we've entered a period more than we have before. I mean, there was never really like a great solution here or, or really this formal mechanism, but we've entered a period in which 
it's more anarchic now and 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 not in like the international relations sense of you know the world is anarchy but in the sense that leaders really have a lot more leeway and and fewer restraints against bad behavior and that's what i feel when when we talk about modi doing something like this or the government doing something like this and, and amending a law last month you know this law last month to to make it even harder for ngos like it's just sort of part of this grander troubling trend one final thing i just want to kind of add just to get back to the india situation and the very tangible effects um to be clear you know because amnesty international is shutting down operations doesn't mean that people and human rights activists aren't still going to do their work, right? But they're not going to have the funding, the international backing, like the really strong institutional backing of Amnesty International. It's a powerful organization, right? It has this huge platform to expose human rights abuses. And it has a platform for, you know, for instance, if an activist is arrested, it can do things like raise an international outcry to get, you know, and provide legal assistance and funding and all kinds of things to get somebody... Um, you know, hopefully, you know, released by the government. It's done these things for decades. So people are still going to be, you know, brave activists are still going to be doing really important work on the ground in India. It's just more dangerous for them now. And that's what's like, I think at the bottom line is that this work won't stop. It's just harder for these people who are doing this. And that's what's really scary. And I actually want to just accentuate this point because I think it's super important. Like, let's not forget who's really going to be hurt by this, right? And it's going to be millions of people in India who needed the help of these NGOs, right? As we alluded to or and mentioned earlier, like India is struggling economically. There's a poor country. There are tons of people who really need help. They, they are food insecure. They, are, they don't have jobs. They are having health issues. India is being racked by the coronavirus. And it's groups like Amnesty and, and, and thousands of others that help these people do better. And when you have the government crack down on a whole bunch of NGOs solely, you know, in part because of Modi's thin skin, then you're see, then you're condemning millions upon millions of Indians to suffer and, and have worse off lives. And it's not to say that NGOs are perfect. That's not to say that they are the BL end all, that they're all saints. They do have issues. And the Indian government has some sort of claim to say that, yes, some, some NGOs misuse money and there's money line and like all that. Okay, fine. But the bottom line here, the real story, is that millions of people in India are going to be hurt by all of this, and and that's on Modi. That's where we're going to leave you today. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for all of his hard work and to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you all get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, and we will talk to you guys next week. Bye. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.